Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. People, give me just a few seconds here. I want to talk about Shuko USA, our sponsor for this episode of the Skins Podcast, the door, window, and facade system provider of Shuko products here in North America, featuring German engineering made in America. Operating Shuko doors and windows is like operating a high-performance German automobile. Quite satisfying. Shuko's diverse window, door, and facade systems not only provide best-in-class thermal and acoustical performance, but are tested and certified in accordance with AMA and FRC, ADA, UL, and Miami-Dade hurricane standards. With literally unbeatable thermal and acoustical performance, they even have window systems that meet demanding passive house standards. Check out a Shuko thermal break sometime and compare it with the competition. Their network of trained and certified glazing contractors ensures that their systems are properly installed, commissioned, and serviced. If you design or specify facade systems and components, you need to know Shuko. Okay, everybody, this is Mick Patterson. I'm here with uh, Ted Kessick, professor at the University of Toronto School of Architecture. Graham Finch, Principal and Senior Building Scientist with RDH Building Science, and Vincent Davenport, Elliston Construction with the Construction Sciences Group with Elliston. Um, we've got uh, a great program today uh, looking at the topic of prefabrication in buildings and particularly facade systems, where we are now. And what we see into the future, we had a, a sort of a, a little bit of a warm-up call on Tuesday on this, uh, and I got to tell you, these guys are ready. On the warm-up call, the warm-up call went over went over an hour, and we were just talking about what we wanted to talk about. So, I expect a, a great dialogue here. Uh, Ted, why don't you sort of frame the topic for us, please? Uh, prefabrication. Okay, Mick. Uh, thanks a lot. I I I think that you know. Things uh, like uh, building information modeling, CNC, digital fabrication, robotics, they've actually been around a lot longer. Uh, people try to make it sound as if it's the latest and greatest, and there's a lot of hype surrounding it. But this has been with us, uh, and, and what we do sort of see is that they, they hold the key to uh, one day realizing high-performance prefabricated facades that are you know probably – a little more accessible, uh, that is easy to include in a project, also a little more affordable. But uh, today, one of the things we wanted to do was explore, you know, what is the reality today of maybe what is the hype, but also where is this heading and what does it mean for building owners, contractors, and uh, architect designers? So um, I just, I was going to kick this off just to set a little bit of context. Um Prefabricated facades are not new, and, and they are subject to the same constraints as any other material component or assembly uh, in, in a construction project. They're, they're governed by that, that universal uh, value triangle that, that connects quality with time and cost, which are all interrelated. And if you tweak one, that it, it, it affects the other two. And so uh, that's something that's never going to go away. Um, so that, that's a constant. But some new things have come up when it comes to the whole business of prefabricated 
facades. One, of course, is is height. Uh, the higher we go, this seems there's a little, it makes a little more sense to try to use them. Uh, accessibility on site, we're, we're building in infill sites in, in large cities increasingly, and it's really difficult to gain access to work from the outside in a conventional manner, stick-built manner. Um, energy codes are driving us towards much higher performance building enclosures, and uh, those can be very expensive to render through sort of on-site stick-built construction. Um, and uh, the biggest catalyst latest, lately to all of this has, of course, been mass timber. And so that has... Uh, really driven it because the need for moisture management in mass timber, especially tall buildings, means that you want to have uh, facade uh, assemblies that are going to be rapidly installed, and that means they're going to be prefabricated, and they're going to arrive on site just in time, and up they go. So um, with those thoughts in mind, uh, I wanted to just maybe get uh, from the from the contracting side from the general contracting and, and construction side maybe just a little bit of a, a an overview from uh, vincent davenport about like the current facade procurement options if you're working on building projects yeah thanks for having me um for sure Rick. where where we are now um and and i, I apologize like the world we that i live in that we live in elston is mostly mostly the mid-rise and the high-rise. So I don't have a lot of perspective on the single-family houses and the low-rise, which ends up making a, a large portion of the building stock, but that's not really where we play right now. But um, in, in our world, really, I mean, uh, when you look at all the scope groups, facade is leading the way. It has been leading the way in prefabrication for a long time. Them and MEP are, are, the, are the leaders for sure. So you have, you have the window wall systems and you have the curtain wall systems, which are, you know, fully prefabricated offsite. Um, some of them in plants that are partially automated already. Um, and, uh, and these are systems that really do cater to our current market. They, they go up fast. Um, they are relatively airtight. They allow for a, ton of glazing which is you know what the market is asking for right now and and to be honest they're very cost efficient um but they they they're they're not the greatest from a thermal performance standpoint they're they're basically bare minimum and and they meet the code but until the code changes that's sort of these are the systems that we're going to be using um the alternative is like the punch window systems ted and that's that's going back to the old ways where we, we throw in a punch window and we build the wall in a very conventional manner with studs and exterior insulation and brick or cladding or whatever, whatever you'd like to finish it with. Right. And so th that's, that's basically where we are at. And when you're in the punch window world, you're kind of in that traditional built up wall assembly, which on a high rise scale is not, is not that compatible with our schedules. So that's, so that's sort of where the, the next step is, is, can we prefab that system? Can we get a higher performance wall, punch window type uh, architecture, but in a prefab system, right? Right. Yeah. And I guess a lot of that is, is going to be driven by things like energy codes and, 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 and different requirements for performance. Graham, what are you seeing? What, what, what's happening in, in terms of energy codes and the, the, the sort of demand for uh, more uh, water and, and uh, water, water penetration resistance and air tightness requirements? Yeah, thanks, Ted. Yeah, so what, what we're seeing in markets right now where the energy codes are really ramping up 
is we're seeing a trend towards walls guiding the design rather than say windows traditionally you know guided the design with curtain wall and window wall systems and in particular in the you know mid to high rise sector so we're you know we're talking you know taller buildings um, and so when you look at you know a shift to um, a wall first as part of your design and then putting windows into that wall you know we look at systems that we currently have available we have you know precast concrete we have steel stud we have wood stud systems insulated metal panels and it's about improving the level of thermal performance and then also having more and more uh, suppliers of these system offering that to the market one of the big challenges we're running into right now is there aren't a lot of suppliers to go to in, in some markets where it can say hey i want a you know passive house or a net zero level uh, steel stud wall system you know you just can't go and, and buy that off the shelf like you would a uh, you know window wall or curtain wall system right now well if that's the case and uh, then and, and you're looking at stuff that's really going to be sort of project specific how important are things when you're doing prefabricated uh, panels how important are full, full scale mock-ups and 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 in some cases even walking crews through the installation procedure is that sort of a a uh, recommended thing when you're going to be going down uh, the road where, you know, I could see where you have a proven uh, supplier that's done a certain system a couple dozen times and you know the results are very reliable. But if it's something that's the first time through, how important is that full-scale mock-up testing and, and then and then, and then then sort of walking the crews through the, the installation procedures? Yeah, so, yeah, when you look at, you know, if you buy something off the shelf, you manufactured curtain wall and window wall components they've been heavily tested and, and used in their industry for some time and you know let's say they most most of the time the kinks have been worked out with air and water tightness um, anytime you develop a new system or you're working with a supplier to develop a you know higher r value wall system that's you know more airtight can be installed maybe in a different way uh, for your construction schedule then you know you, you kind of want you want to do this performance mock-up testing uh, i'll explain that in, in a minute here to basically, you know, make the mistakes on the ground before you go up 30 stories, so to speak. And that's quite common with uh, curtain wall systems right now. We, we get involved with the, the uh, facade engineering on new curtain wall systems. And there's always a full-scale performance mock-up where you do air, water, structural uh, testing. You do seismic testing. And you're, and you're pushing it to its performance limits in terms of how you've designed it so that it doesn't leak, doesn't leak air, um, and doesn't fall apart or fall off the building uh, before it's installed. So it's incredibly important to do that type of testing when you're developing new systems. It's almost a you know a necessary step because you don't want to make that mistake and have to pull off all that you know let's say wall system off your building after you you find at the thirtieth floor that you know something doesn't fit or if it you know you got a systemic issue with a leak. So I think it's. That's a sort of mandatory new step. And what we're seeing right now is there's a lot of new players and new systems coming to market or being uh, tried out. And they're just new, right? They're the, the infancy of this this uh, this market in some place, uh, some places. And so you need to prove it out. Um, yeah. There are lots of systems that, you know, already have been proven. You know, there are steel stud, you know, EVES panel wall systems precast. You don't need to do performance mock-ups necessarily for those systems unless you're changing something and it's usually changing in how you might connect it together. Okay, and I I couldn't agree I couldn't agree more from from our side. We 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 literally live and die by by the mockups. So it to 
to think if you have to do something a couple thousand times over on a building and to not try it before you start is 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 pure insanity, right? So and well, we did and, we did that for a long time though, you know. Like I mean, that, that was sort of, that you're talking the '60s and the '70s here, and yeah. uh, you know, at that time, people just said, "What the heck? Let's give it a," you know. And and I know that and the reason I'm bringing this up is that what, what's critical because a lot of people are going to be getting into this stuff. Who ends up actually putting the systems together? Is 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 it better to get a crew that's associated with the manufacturer? Is it better putting together your own crew and then then to keep them honest? What what kind of quality assurance? Uh, let's say a building enclosure commissioning in terms of uh, air leakage testing as as it's going up, so that you you catch things early on in terms of whether they're adhering to what has to be done i'm just uh, between yourself graham and and vincent i'm trying to think of how how do you how do you manage the risk of that in such a yeah, way so, that you do yeah in you know in conventional construction you know a site built you know you've got a, a bunch of different parts coming together assemblies you know sorry uh, assemblies are made up of materials and different trades are doing different parts and so there's no real <clears throat> overall ownership and what shifts with a prefabricated system uh, is well, there, well, we we have ownership, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> you do, but you're also, you know, you're 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 you know controlling the puppet strings of a whole bunch of different players there, and that becomes, you know, uh, I'd say a challenge, right? And that's where we run into problems. The uh, by others in the in the spec or in the drawings that those varying critical gaps between, you know, the curtain wall system and the wall, or the, you know, the sealant joint that's slapping one, um, you know, clouding trade to another, those get missed, right? Right. And so I'd say the what happens in with, you know, prefabricated, prefabricated systems, you know, just like you see in, in curtain walls, there's ownership of that whole system. Right. And when you have ownership of that whole system, there's, you know, uh, you, you want to make sure that it it all works together, you know, up front, you know, sort of like an automobile. Right. It works, it, you know, and it works every time. And so when it gets installed, you don't run into, you know, systemic issues with, you know, membrane laps or a, a joint between an interface. How do you guys see this all unfolding, uh, you know, what you're talking about? Like looking down the road 10 years or something, uh, you know, given the drivers that are on the table now, I mean, is this going to be organic change, incremental change over time? Or, you know, like especially like from the standpoint of of curtain wall technology, is this going to be disruptive change? Yeah, that's an interesting – I mean, I think that unless there's – in the market, like we're in a competitive market, and I'm talking like competitive private market. I mean, institutions, public, the public market will always, they always have other incentives to go above and beyond from a performance standpoint. So that's where it's going to start. You know, the, the government projects, the colleges, universities, they'll, they'll want to have higher performance systems. They already are. So that's where they'll, they'll test out the systems. It'll, it'll be a premium, but they'll test them out and they're, they'll have higher performance systems. But the rest of the market, I mean, they need a reason to go above and beyond. Otherwise, they're they're gonna we're gonna continue to deliver buildings that just meet the the baseline code, right? So I think yeah. like like Graham was saying, like these energy codes that are popping up in different areas around Canada. Once they get to a point where you physically can't, you know, have a sixty percent glazing ratio or seven percent glazing ratio, and you're using window wall or curtain wall, once that day comes, the entire market has to shift and be able to deliver a system that makes sense for mid and high rise 
right? For low rise, we can always build a conventional wall system. We can we can access it from grade, but I think there needs to be like a fundamental, like it, we need. Unfortunately, our market needs to be pushed to go to that next level. And then once that push is there, or just before that push is there, I think the the supply market will pivot and and we'll see innovative systems that will meet our needs. But until until we want to buy it, they're not going to make it. I guess what uh, one of the points I wanted to make is that you know there are these tipping points, and and certainly energy codes are part of them, and certainly the height of the building and accessibility or other uh, tipping points where people want to go towards prefabricated panels, and then now they they're going to have to be high performance. But I, I my experience over the years, and, and I'm I'm looking back at a little over thirty years. Well, if you think it's getting closer to forty, I got into the construction industry back in 1974, so. Every time the industry pivots, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of times the ball gets dropped. And I think that's one of the reasons we're having this podcast is because we want to alert people to, okay, so how do you, until this becomes truly plug-and-play technology that's reliable, how do you ensure that that you're doing the right things to maximize the success of using that high-performance technology? you know, prefabricated system, how do you make sure that it actually meets the performance targets that you don't end up with systemic uh, performance uh, gaps and all kinds of stuff like that? And that's, that's really sort of the, the, the it, it's interesting to talk about it. The industry's got a lot of hype about it, but, but the realities are, is that right now, I don't think that we, we can consistently deliver this type of a, a product and certainly not across all of the markets in North America. Am I, am I incorrect in that or? No, that's 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 correct right now for sure. It's not. A, I mean, the systems that we need for the high rise, like you said, Ted. I mean, there's a there's few there's only a few suppliers that we would we would trust with that type of scope because, I mean, there's two. The the idea of putting all your eggs in one basket and a single throat to choke, as they say, in the facade world, although it does, it aggregates the risk it puts a lot of onus onto one party. So if you do have an issue with that one party or if there is something catastrophic that happens, it's all, it's all together, you know? So, you know, there's a balance between having it all into in one supplier, which it just basically means you really need to evaluate that supply chain. That supply chain has to be sophisticated, has to be robust, and there has to be a few different players that can, that can, that can compete against each other. Yeah, I think to that point too. You look at the market right now. I mean, and and a lot of people think prefab. Well, you can make it in you know Toronto and ship it everywhere across Canada. The reality is just that that one factory, say in Toronto, can't produce enough building facade components to uh, you know provide all of Canada with its buildings. You need you know hundreds of these factories to to make it work, and so you're only shipping things around. But you know the reality right now is you know. We're early on the adoption curve, I think, of a lot of the, the higher performance prefabricated systems. And so, I, you know, when you're early on that, you got the early adopters. And so we're, we're tending to be cautious, right? You do, you do a lot of the testing, the performance mock-ups. You, you're, you're involved. You have those uh, fabricators involved in a design assist role in, in many cases where they're actually involved with the design team. So they're designing and tweaking the, their current systems on your project. And I think that's critical when, you know, what we find doesn't work. You can't design a building for prefabrication and then go, you know, shop it around. You're, you're inevitably going to change something and you're going to go back to the drawing board. You know, it could be as simple as how big of a panel, let's say, they, they can ship on the truck to your site. Um, or 
your, you know, some anticipated weight and how you're going to lift that uh, the panel into place on site. So there's all these things that you need to get those designers involved early. Uh, similar, you know, a bit actually earlier than we see current wall uh, suppliers potentially getting involved. So you need that sort of teamwork to, to make this work. You know, you can't just go right now and, and at the last moment tender this out. It just it doesn't really work. That's right. And and I think there's even like sort of further to that is the contracts, like the contract for the project. If the project's going to be kind of going after these innovative systems in a time when, like like Graham says, it's still in its infancy, like a, it needs to be some a, a contract type that promotes collaboration. So like a lump sum, stip sum contract is not going to promote that type of upfront collaboration. It just is this is almost impossible, but like a design build or a, like a, a, like a CM even would work or a, a IPD, those things allow people to work together. And like Graham says, you know, develop the system for the project. How, how often do those kind of delivery strategies occur in, in uh, Canadian buildings? Des- design build is, is fairly, fairly popular. And, and CM is, I mean, more and more in the bigger markets, we're seeing a lot less, Stip sum, especially for the larger projects. Um, there, if it is if it is a guaranteed price, it's it's a guaranteed price as part of a CM, like CM that eventually gets to a GMP or a or a design build as part of a P three or or something like that. And those allow partners to come together and design the project together. But uh, so I would say it's it's more and more common. It's more common than stip sum in the big markets. I mean, I was involved in a lot of design assist projects uh, with enclosed in the U.S. curtain wall projects in the U.S. That you know that, that you know if you talk to people about design assist, everybody has a different you know interpretation of it. Some people will even say um, you know it's getting the contractor to do as much work up front for free as you can, <laughs> which is basically business as usual, you know. But uh, you know the 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 collaborative delivery strategies, it's like there's as much opportunity in refining that process as there is in the whole notion of prefabricated systems. Absolutely. Yeah, you need to you need to create an environment where it's actually possible contractually, right? Yeah. And I think the the successful projects I've been involved with, they did pay for that design assist. You can't rely on them. If you want a good system, then you have to pay. You pay for it, right? If you if if you're not that serious, then you might try that that sort of you know beat up the the, the supplier route, but uh, you know I don't think that goes that far. The you look at there are also companies now you know Katera is an example in the U.S. which are trying to do that sort of vertical integration in house where they'll design build you know bring in their own parts uh, as well to this and so you're you're starting to see companies that can do it all in house. So you go and you and so you hire, you know, even companies like Ellis Don that would provide the GC as well as the the parts, the, the prefabricated facade components. So, yeah, okay. So, so here's the thing. So now, now you let's assume that everything's going well, and you've you've got the right procurement model, and uh, you get you're getting your design assist, and everything's going along okay. Uh, you, you, if it was something that was drastically different or innovative, you'd probably still want to do the mock-up and some testing, right? Yeah, definitely. And the problem with mock-ups and testing, Ted, is that they're they're expensive, right? They take they take time. You know, you need to uh, you know get the mock-up up early um, and test it, and that takes time to to do. 
And right. then while you're also trying to design the rest of that building too. So it, it helps to have a, a leg leg up, you know, and maybe have some pre-development work with, uh, you know, companies have systems that are, they're considering for this, but yeah, there's the real, and so the larger projects, you know, when you're, you're talking about tens of millions of dollars of facade cost or contracts, they can easily absorb that, but it's, it's a smaller, you know, mid rise that maybe only has up to a million dollars of, you know, facade elements that's going to have a harder time, you know, um, eating that cost. So I think that we're seeing right now a lot of the development of new systems on, on larger buildings, just cause that, you know, it's, the economics works. It's the mid rise that also needs these systems. That is, uh, you're going to be harder to, to, um, uh, shift, you know, from that site built to a, a prefab just cause of that. Okay. So, so then, then the next sort of question or the next shoe to drop is let's assume that we're trying to meet certain uh, water penetration and air tightness requirements because they're actually stipulated now as the energy codes become more aggressive. Um, then who is going to look after the enclosure commissioning? In, in other words, what I'm trying to understand is what percentage of the mid rise and high rise projects today are actually doing proper enclosure commissioning so that they know that the air tightness levels are being achieved. Is that a common thing or 10, 20% of the market? Who's it's hard to say. I mean, in British Columbia and the West coast, you know, Washington state, you know, there, where there is mandatory air tightness testing either by state codes in the U S or what's called a step code in British Columbia, which is a, a tiered energy code. There's mandatory requirements for whole building air tightness testing, which, um, you know, it looks at the overall air tightness of the building enclosure. Now, interestingly, you know, you could have a, you know, facade system with small air leaks that, you know, might not add up to too much. Right. And, and you'd still pass those, those overall air tightness targets, you know, cause you got roof and other, you know, components that are weighted in there. But, um, you know, the, so there, there are some markets where, you know, air tightness testing is, you know, you get the final test, but you're also doing commissioning during construction. Uh, so that's quite common. Uh, but there are other jurisdictions where, you know, that's not being done. And even let's say the involvement of building enclosure uh, or facade engineers is, is not as commonplace as well. And where the architects taking on more of that responsibility. So, you know, across North America, you see uh, a mix of, uh, let's say design and construction, um, you know, a, a, inspections and and or you know sort of responsibilities i should say that that change and vary yeah well the reason okay the reason I, i'm bring, okay one second the reason I'm, i wanted to mention that is so so i think we would all agree then that it's it's really double jeopardy if you bypass the mock-up stage and you also don't do the building enclosure commissioning if you're not going to do both then you really are risking something with prefabricated panel systems yeah, and I think risk is the key word there, Ted, because um, I think from a building em- when you say building envelope commissioning, I, I can't help but from a like just from a in terms of nomenclature, think of like the the building envelope commissioning as part of lead, right? Which is sometimes required. And then, you know, we hire our friends over at RDH and they help us through that and, and we get that point as part of our lead strategy. And it requires us to, you know, RDH reviews the drawings and we do all these, you know, double checks and we test this and that. And then we get the, the lead point. But independent, that only happens on certain projects where that's something that the, that the lead strategy includes, right? Independent of that, 
for us as a contractor and for all the other contractors out there, the facade inherently holds a large portion of the risk, like an extremely large portion of the risk. If you talk to any construction company or construction insurance company, they'll tell you that there's a lot of risk in the facade. So I think we, the, the, the bigger players out there have like we, like Elliston has a building science department. We have, you know, 10 people that just do building science and they go out, we test their own buildings, even if it's not required as part of the project's scope, because we want to manage our risk. So, and I think that's done today. If, if we're building a high rise tower and it's curtain wall or window wall, we're, we're testing that we're inspecting it, making sure it meets the targets of the project because of the risk. And so I think risk is a big driver in making sure that systems perform properly. Cause if you don't, there's a, like, there's a real financial um, consequences. Yeah. I would a hundred percent agree. The, the reason that, you know, building enclosure consultants get uh, involved in jurisdictions that don't have requirements to hire them is, is risk management, right? It's, you know, who's best suited to, to look after the risk. And, it, you know, it's usually the, you know, third party that, to the design team that's um, looking after, you know, managing the risk of their overall project and the design. Um, you know, I'll mention to your point too, like, I think you right now, and even, you know, you can't assume that a manufacturer is going to provide, you know, a perfect system that's going to be perfectly airtight and watertight, you know, right off the bat. And I think that when you approach these systems, you need to approach them with caution. You don't want to be, you know, um, taken by the sales pitch, let's say, of some new um, prefabricated facade or modular system. You want to be really careful, do your homework. And part of that commissioning is for the design team and the, the contractor team and the engineering team to get familiar and comfortable with that system as well. And so, you know, once you use it on one project, then you'd be more comfortable in the second and you might, you know, your commissioning and, and the level of, um, you know, stringency you put on the testing requirements what might change over time as well. Right. But, you know, early on, you know, we're, we're like you say, we're in the early part of this, you know, shift to higher performance facade or prefabricated facades. And we need to do our homework. We can't just, you know, take people's words that everything's going to work just fine because, you know, we know from yeah. experience that probably isn't the case. That's, the, that's, that's true. I mean, you really, we, we, you really do need to evaluate your, your partners for sure before you before you you start dancing but at the same time i will i will defend the, the industry like the facade industry and say that you know there are some extremely sophisticated suppliers out there who who we you know never have an issue with and are able to supply very complicated systems on a regular basis but you know there, that's 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 the that's the tier a and there's tier b and there's tier c and there's tier d right so there's all sorts of suppliers out there yeah, and I think, you know, and what's unique about this whole whole prefabrication system is you have, you've always had these good suppliers to say windows, you know, membrane, you know, or cladding, right? And now you're pulling all these pieces together and you've got, you know, five or six different manufacturers coming together. And yeah. so the compatibility and the fit of all these different pieces, you know, and then you put it on a building, the thermal expansion, the traction, the, the pressures, the cyclical loading can, you know, start to, to impact how it performs, right? So it's like, you need that track record of performance of those pieces to, you know, put together the system. And then you need the track record of the, the system, to, you know, to help move the industry forward and understand that, Hey, these systems actually work pretty well. Yeah. Vince, Vince, you started talking about the, about the supply chain. How fragmented is the supply chain 
and and what kind of opportunities are are there for you know would be uh, you know fabricators manufacturers in that space i think there's fantastic opportunity in in like the prefab large format panel system like a big wall panel we're talking 20 30 feet wide with punch windows installed the cladding on it nice you know, durable joint system, whether it's a gasketed system or what, what, what have you. I think there's a great opportunity there for sure. Um, I mean, our clients are asking for it. They, they, they understand it's coming. I think it's, it's a matter of when it's going to be actually like, like Graham, when, what, like in, in Vancouver and Toronto, let's say, when's the date that you, you know, you physically can't install a curtain wall system or a window wall system and meet the energy code. And when that, like hopefully we're prepared before that date happened, but you know, that when's that date, right. Is it, is it interesting question on, on a high rise, you know, residential or commercial. Yeah, you talk about supply chain. I mean, you know, we've got all the parts we need generally, although, you know, when you talk about facade systems and what makes them unique or sorry, prefabricated facade systems, what makes them unique is actually the joints, right? So, there are lots of different ways you can connect these different panels together. And there's technology that, you know, it's not new. It's in the, the precast concrete industry, the curtain wall industry, the window wall industry, you know, steel stud industry. And, you know, there, there's lots of different ways you can put things together, you know, gaskets and sealant joints and flexible sealant joints. And, it, you know, that joint is very critical to the, the success of these, these systems and how easily it can be that joint can be sealed up, made air and watertight, um, and not destroy thermal performance, you know, on site. That that segment of the market, like you can't just go to a you know supply store and say, I want this joint in, in a lot of cases. You know, I want this structural joint to connect my panels together. And so there there <clears throat> there is definitely gonna need, need to be some innovation there and even supply chain that can that can help people out and say, here, here's a reliable joint system that we can use for 30 story buildings or here's one that's suitable for a mid-rise yeah and and and, and don't say it's a ceiling joint <laughs> that's, that's right. well yeah. i i guess i guess one of the things that you can see coming about you know like you think about this is that so so let's assume that we're going to move towards a more mature market let's assume that over the next five years in enough of the major markets in North America, we're going to see some pretty stringent code requirements come out, and we probably will not be doing all glass uh, building enclosures anymore. I'm sure there's always going to be the odd one that's going to sneak through in some fashion, and somehow <laughs> they'll 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 get somebody to game the energy models in such a way that they'll say, "Yeah, yeah, we did it." But I'm I'm thinking for the most part that's going to change, and 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 so. You can see that you'd almost want to get to something that would be similar to a classification system for these in the sense that, you know, we have that for um, different types of mechanical uh, uh, joint systems. They're, they're rated up to a certain amount of uh, working stress or whatever you want, you know, that you can put in so many PSI of pressure into this type of pipe, but you can't put it into this other type of pipe or this connector can withstand so much stress. And so you, you'd like to think that eventually we would get to a point where you'd sort of look and say, you know, this is a level four uh, or a class four uh, building enclosure. And that means that you can take this thing up to 60 stories and it's going to perform. And this, there's maybe a, you know, a class one system that, that's good to up to eight stories. And, and I, I just, you know what I'm getting at? I, I'm thinking in some ways without that, this whole process to me seems like a very, um, how would you say, 
it, it's a very onerous process that if I've always have to do mock-ups and then I'm going to have to do building enclosure commissioning and all of this, and this gets all layered on. On the other hand, I've had to, and I just want to share these thoughts uh, and see what your feedback is. I've talked to people about this and they say that, well, if you look at the cost of that, while it may seem like a lot of money, if you express it as a percentage of the project cost, this this extra diligence, and also if you compare it to what happens if there's a major deficiency that then has to be repaired, that it's actually not as big a premium as people might think. So I, I wonder how, how you feel about that, having either a sta- industry standard for classification of performance or 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 just really just exercising due diligence and, and, and accepting that's the cost of doing business if you want a durable, resilient building. Yeah. So I think, you know, you, yeah, you look at the systems right now, I mean, they all... <clears throat> you could sort of group them into, you know, low, medium, and high rise, sort of like the way we like to look at things, you know, low, medium, and high rise or low, medium, and high risk, you know, in terms of air, water, you know, structural, you know, performance, right? Yep. And and so, you know, right now there there are a lot of systems, let's say, that have worked just fine in the low rise sector that we know and, and, and case studies, examples of failed modular and prefabricated buildings have shown that, they're not suitable for a high-rise building. So I'd say there probably are already the systems for the lower-risk buildings right now. It's the higher-risk, the higher-performance buildings that are demanding you know, better new systems that the supply chain hasn't developed yet. And so, gotcha. and so that's where, I, you know, right now when we're looking at connecting systems, you look at borrowing technology from other sectors that know how to do this, right? You know, curtain walls figured it out, you know, for, for, for decades. Um you made a point too, like you may not see curtain wall, you know, on, on, you know, hundred percent of these buildings. I, I actually disagree because I think what's happening and we're seeing this a bit already is the curtain wall suppliers are figuring out ways to improve the thermal performance. You know, there's technology ways, you know, better insulation and details, but, you know, modifying those systems using different materials that are, you know, same high strength and, and, and the lower thermal conductivity to improve curtain wall systems that you know will allow and, and improve glazing systems that will allow you to use you know 100% glass where where you where you pay for it right it's going to cost more but oh those are loft that's lofty though come on i mean i i know i know what you're talking i mean yeah we can switch if you if we're going to have framing every 1.5 meters we we're going to have a problem you know that Graham, you've done the calcs more than anyone if that thing plateaus right no matter what you do in between the frame and and so yeah we can change the frame to fiberglass or we can buy some sort of vacuum insulated glass but i mean i would say i guess i'm being glass half full here i'm just like that those technologies are going to require some some serious development costs until they're until they're actually going to be competitive in our market right like and not like something we use on the space station yeah no i I agree and it's you know it, there are multi-pane glazing systems that aren't so, you know, vacuum insulated glass, for example. And, you know, once we work out some of the, the detail challenges where the thermal bridges are still occurring, I think, but that, you know, the market hasn't been asking for that. And that's part of, you know, what's yeah. going to drive that cost down is when people say, okay, well, everyone has to do this. Um, that's the first you know, step for sure. Yeah. And so we're starting to see, you know, new curtain wall systems that are, you know, truly trying to get R40 in their spandrel panels, for example, because that's always been a, a, a challenge. 
And it, you know, some of the innovative strategies, they look a lot like uh, aluminum stud frame walls with exterior insulation. Like, you know, so uh, there are these, these different systems that, you know, they're only evolving now because of energy code and people are starting to ask in, in small limited markets. And I think that those early adopters there will come up with some creative, higher performance solutions. You know, I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I think we'll see. They, they will innovate for sure if, they, if they're required to. I mean, one of the things that's that's sort of interesting in itself, and, and I don't want to go down this road too far, but the question that I keep asking people, and especially since we've had this pandemic occurring and people have been working away from offices and all this stuff, I often wonder, like, what is the uh, real future of the tall glass office tower? I just really wonder about that but anyway let's assume that people still want them I, i'm sure that if there's a, a a market demand and and if the performance requirements go up that that we're going to have a technological solution we may not like the price point but um i think there will be uh, there will be those who can come up but let's assume that that's really a small fraction of the market let's talk about the bread and butter buildings that have to be done over the next little while. I don't care whether we're talking hospitals or schools or or, or institutional buildings or uh, mid and high rise uh, housing uh, projects, multi-unit residential buildings. I think we're still looking at something that is going to have fairly modest window to wall ratios, fairly high overall effective R values, um, something that has to be airtight, watertight. Um, so, What's gonna what's what's gonna happen? Do you think when 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 we go to that? What what do you think are then going to become the predominant type of facade systems that we're going to start seeing coming out? Do you think they're going to be the the steel studs? Do you think they're going to be more like a an insulated uh, uh, a structural insulated panel? What, what where do you see this going? Every way. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be a mix. Um, and you know where you know you look at the you don't need new materials here we have the building materials we need you're going to see steel you're going to see concrete you're going to see wood options and what might drive you um, between different choices there uh, and there's a whole bunch of other proprietary options and materials that are don't fit within those three classifications um, is that you know is carbon you know is carbon driving your project and then there you might look at wood right or is lightweight you know might look at steel or do you want something you know, do you want concrete, the look of concrete and the, the feel and the, and the weight of it for other reasons? So like the, the every project has its own sort of unique requirements. So I think you're I don't think there's going to be every any one direction. Everyone's going to go. Uh, you're still going to see aluminum components, aluminum curtain wall components. Uh, all these players are just the bar is going to have to be raised. Now, I think what we'll see is, you know, in a cost driven market, it will be interesting to see what will fill in that sort of market um, segment that, you know, traditionally a window wall uh, has, has dominated in, in many larger cities, what's going to replace that, right? Is it, is it steel stud window wall? Is it a steel stud wall panel system with eaves and punch windows, you know, and, you know, what, and, and still, of course, be able to sell these buildings. So what is that? And I don't, I'm not quite sure yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, what, I don't, I don't have the crystal ball. I wish I did, but, what we would want to see, what we like when we're thinking about this and working through feasibility studies with our clients, I mean, I think there's an intermediate step with, from our perspective beyond performance. There's a, there's, 
we have to look at what's like from a, there's a big schedule piece to this whole prefab wall panel thing. Right. And so what window wall and curtain wall does really great right now is that it can be installed independent of our tower crane, which is, you know, focusing on the structure where, so as the structure is going up, you know, eight floors below that, the envelope is going up or six floors below that the envelope is going up. And so we, it's a really a matter if we're going to switch to these like sort of built up wall assemblies because they're higher performance, we can stuff them full of insulation and put whatever cladding system we want. It's, I mean, it's like, like Graham said, we're not reinventing anything. These things, this is the system we use everywhere, but if we're going to use them in higher or larger, taller buildings, then we need to figure out, okay, what is criti- what's critical path to us? What actually matters? And then what actually matters is being weather tight. That's what matters to our schedule. If at the end of the day, there's some people working on swing stages installing the final cladding in parallel to the interior finishes, that's okay. That doesn't really matter to, to us because they're working in parallel. But if we're holding up the weather tight part piece of it, and that's holding up every other cascading scope, we have a we have a pretty serious problem now. It has a huge impact on the project, right? So I think maybe there's like an inter intermediate step here. We'd hope that where people find innovative ways of of providing a prefab weather tight facade. So the the studs are in it, the the exterior sheathing, the blue skin, the windows are installed and tied in, and you can you know plug them into the building as we go. And then the cladding, because, you know, we don't want to see joints everywhere in the cladding that ruins the architecture. The cladding comes up after in a conventional means, but it doesn't affect our schedule. So before we start putting all the components together into a facade system, maybe there's a simple in-between facade system that emerges to sort of serve this market you're talking about, Ted. And that, that would be that'd be a nice little niche market to get into. Well, I think one of the exciting aspects of that is that we, we can talk now about having, you know, cladding systems that are easy to change out because that's one of the things that you know i mean i typically the example i always point out even though it's one of my favorite materials regardless is masonry so when i look at uh, buildings that have a brick facade i look and i go you know that's not an easy facade system to change out if you want to change out that facade system it's complicated many facade systems are complicated and it would be nice to think that if we could come up with a system that does all of the weather tightness that actually has all of the control layers in place. And then you really have an option at the end as to what you would like to put on as a cladding. It's almost like saying, what style of overcoat would you like to wear today? That would be really nice. And then if we know that about every 75, 50 to 75, maybe 100 years, hard to say, um, that cladding is going to have to get changed out. Hopefully the control layers still last. Hopefully that part still works. The weather tightness part works. And hopefully we've even designed the system that we can go back periodically and reseal or reinforce in such a way that we can get that long life out of that part of the building, let's say at least a couple hundred years. And then in that couple hundred years, we're going to see, I don't know, three or four new facades go on. I, I, I don't think that's, that's such a bad idea. We're, we're used to changing tires on our cars. And, and I guess eventually maybe we have to get used to changing uh, the cladding part of our uh, facade system. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a big issue, Ted, you know, and it's not, it's not just masonry facade systems. Unitized curtain wall systems have the same shortcoming. That's right. Or any interlocking system, right, that has an order in which it goes in and an order in which it comes out, right? Yeah, a big problem when it comes to durability and extended service life. And I don't think, you know, when you look at prefabrication, it doesn't necessarily change this in a design. But I think what, what's unique about prefabrication 
is that in theory, you could have some tolerance on, you know, where your backup structure is. Let's say your rail system and your clip and rail for your exterior insulation, you know, and so you know precisely where that is. So if you wanted a new cladding system, you could in theory yeah, pull the old one off and then put the new one on at the same time. The challenge is, you know, with a lot of restoration projects is you're ripping off old things, damaging everything underneath, um, and then putting the new stuff on is timely and expensive. But if, you know, in theory, you could just go up to the building with the new cladding, you know, clip off the old one or unscrew it, you know, and then you put the new one on, it fits exactly, you're right, because you knew what the backup was, then that's a real benefit, right? And I think yeah. that's prefabrication, like factory producing where your backup structure is precisely, just like, you know, factory producing, you know, the, the size dimensions of unitized curtain wall, that allows you to do that future change a lot more cost effectively the, the right. thing i wonder though about that is like when we do reclads today we like just like you said graham you know you pull you pull the finish off whatever it is a stone or a brick or an old metal panel and then you look inside and it's an ancient technology it's like you know maybe it's fiberglass insulation or it's like a split vapor barrier air barrier on a high-rise building and so we're replacing a lot of it just because, you know, there's newer, better means and methods for even that backup wall. So I just wonder if, you know, even if we come to a conclusion, this is the perfect backup wall today in 180 years when I'm going to, re well, I'm not replacing that, but someone's replacing it. And they, by then we have a better technology, a better vapor barrier, a, a smart, you know, layer in there that we're replacing that part anyways, because it's a, it's an ancient technology, right? Yeah. Well, it's 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 really tough. I mean, buildings are not organic, and uh, if they were living things, they'd be like us. Like we're constantly exfoli exfoliating, and uh, so our skin keeps regenerating. And I don't know what kind of technology uh, uh, it would be. Some kind of biotech that we'd have to in invent, where uh, the skin would con of the building would keep improving itself by pulling pollutants out of the air. That would be a real beautiful. Uh, technology and and I want to buy the shares of that company if they ever come on the market. Uh, I'd like to be right at the ground floor for something like that. But I think in the meantime, we're talking about you know picking highly durable materials that are going to give us a long service life. So again, that gets back to this carbon issue, uh, materials uh, resource depletion. You know, like I've I've always been a big fan. I, I like I think copper facades are gorgeous. I think they last a long, long time. I think properly detailed and put together. I would love to have a copper cladding on my building if I if I wanted to pass it off to my great grandchildren and still have the same cladding system in place. Um, but you know that's that 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 do we think like that anymore? Uh, is one question. You know, mind you, it doesn't it, it could be it could be a high grade of stainless steel or titanium. It doesn't have to be copper. But again, these have implications when it comes to. Where did those materials come from? What kind of environmental damage did they do? And are they coming from far away? And so their carbon footprint is high. And so, you know, I mean, I guess if you want to keep everything like really low carbon, then you go the route of the Inuit and, and you and you make igloos out of snow. I mean, that's kind of got a zero carbon footprint. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how high you can go with those, and I don't know how long they last in July. But uh, you know, a great, a great, a great concept. And so you sit there and you think, well, how how do we bring that same level of sort of environmental uh, stewardship and and all of that to, mm -hmm. to 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 the to the world of big cities and big buildings and all the stuff that we want those those uh, type of facilities to do? Yeah, I mean, really, really cool. You you guys would be interested in this. 
and Ted, it's one of it's one of I'm not sure if it's one of your students or it's a it's a student at U of T. And I wish I remembered her name because I'd plug her because I just listened to her presentation of a of a thesis, I guess that she's put a paper that she's put together where she combined an energy modeling software and uh, and a uh, LCA software with grasshopper so it has some generative design abilities anyways to to i to rifle through a whole bunch of facade options and looking at embodied carbon and mm-hmm. operational savings and it's it was fascinating to see the trade-off between i mean when we're making these higher higher performance facade systems we're inherently using more material and depending on what type of material we're using we could actually counteract the operational savings over 50 years and i Absolutely. found that I found Absolutely. that wild to think about, right? Like whether we're using XPS, which is high energy intensity, or aluminum, which is extremely high energy intensity, like extrusion. But that, right? That's exactly what we've been doing, Vince, you know, over time. You know, we, we have been, you know, like with double skin facades, for example, we've been solving, trying to solve the, the, the energy problem, the operational energy problem by adding materiality and totally ignoring the embodied carbon aspect of it. And that's why the embodied carbon thing really changes everything. It's a big, it's a, yeah, it's, that's a big tipping point for sure. And I think also as we're starting to understand the impact of different types of materials and resource extraction and what that has is how some of those resource extractions, the mining operations and so on, how they affect uh, the ecology, uh, water quality and a whole bunch of stuff like that. So, so when you start to really look at the full a ripple effect and that that field is new that's that's just coming out really big now and it's known as energy so you, you take the n and energy and replace it with m and and now you're looking from an ecological perspective at the whole total ripple effect of whatever it is that you're doing right through like the entire chain and some things are pretty shocking as to you wonder like if i put more of this into my building and certainly expanded or extruded uh, polystyrene is a real killer um, and, and, and that's because of the blowing agents. So, so it's, it's, it's one of those things where, where you, you, uh, it, I think, I think this is, this is why it's going to be so interesting to see how, how biologically based we can make our, our future systems. We, we need things that are much more uh, gentle on the environment and yet perform. Yeah. What I, what I'm finding really interesting right now with embodied carbon you know, we, I think as an industry, we, we generally know how to reduce our operating carbon. And, you know, we're, you know, depending on where you are, you're tied to different, you know, interconnected grids. But, you know, in, in areas where they have cleaner grids, uh, you know, Ontario, BC, Quebec, you know, bit of the, uh, you know, the East Coast is that, you know, the focus is shifting towards embodied carbon. And so what's really fascinating is, you know, we're getting to, you know, passivos and net zero buildings. And then we're like, well, what's next? You know, what's, you know, what's, what's the next step? And, you know, generally we know how to reduce building energy use by, you know, easily 10, 15, you know, or sorry, 10, 50, you know, 90%. What's, you know, and we generally understand these numbers. What I'm finding really fascinating now with embodied carbon you know, it's orders of magnitude different in materials, right? And so we we tend to focus on those like big players, like the blowing agents and foam. Um, and then you know it starts to shift people towards you know more bio-based materials. Wood, for example, really uh, shines in a lot of uh, a lot of respects. But it's it, there's such a drastic difference that can be made. You know, when you start talking about aluminum and, and foams and glass, 
that you know building materials that we conventionally use are now seen as as, as really bad, right? And so you know, and and you can make huge different like orders of magnitude difference in your carbon equations if I just taking out say aluminum or taking out the foam. You know, right. and, and the question is, what do you replace it with? Right. So, uh, you know, the, the, so this is where, you know, when you start getting into the materiality stuff, this is where wood emerges as an interesting material. Uh, I think, uh, Ted, you're involved in a very interesting prefabricated timber facade system, if I'm not mistaken. And maybe well, Graham, I'm, 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 one, I'm one of the I'm, I'm on a, I'm I'm, uh, I'm giving technical guidance to a team that is competing uh, there is a competition for designing such a system. I believe Graham is involved uh, more from the adjudicating side of things. Or on the uh, design team and sort of the, the vision for it. But, uh, yeah, the idea is to uh, incentivize, you know, wood-based facade systems as the structural element in tall buildings, which is, you know, got challenges with, you know, how you address fire, durability, you know, manufacturing, logistics, you know, everything else that goes with it. But, you know, what we're seeing, and I think Ted, Ted's evolved too, is that, you know, it is quite easy to swap out, you know, steel stud, you know, backup walls or aluminum current wall backup to wood panelized systems, cross laminated timber and thick plywood and other LVLs and things like that. So um, that coming soon, you know, um, a competition that's going to be looking at wood facades. Well, I think, I think one of the things that's interesting is that, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of different people that do uh, interesting stuff. And um, so I, there's a fellow by the name of Chris Magwood, and he, he's really involved in, in working with biologically based building materials. And he actually has a school where, where he uh, teaches, this is in Peterborough, Ontario, where he teaches people, they go and take a six-week course learning how to build buildings that actually perform very, very well. Uh, at the passive house level, but but have a very low carbon footprint. So just to give you an idea, the difference between a conventional building and one that's built the right way is that the net carbon emissions uh, for a conventional building, uh, 241 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per square meter of floor area. That, that That's how much goes into the atmosphere. You make the right material choices, you actually end up sequestering carbon and you end up storing 137 kilograms of equivalent uh, CO2 per square meter. Now, now the difference here is, uh, is, is 400 uh, uh, kilograms of CO2 equivalent per square meter. So if we were to pick the right materials for our buildings, we could have it so that they are actually uh, net positive in terms of carbon. So, so that's important, but I mean, you know, you're looking at straw and wood fiberboard insulations. Well, we got to do something about that for certain applications. Uh, compressed straw panel interior walls, um, you know, getting rid of drywall. Um, there, there are things that we have to change uh, a, a little, but at the end of the day, we, we do right now own or have access to materials that we could make amazingly low carbon, if not uh, actually a carbon positive uh, 
prefabricated facade systems. And of course, the big part of that is, is dealing with the actual structure. So that's the appeal of mass timber. But I think the facades are particularly important because they are the what separates the inside from the outside. And they're the ones that take the beating. And they're actually protecting the structure from degradation, if you think of it that way. So just like us as humans, the skin is sort of important and you know everybody judges you by the look of your skin and when you get old you don't you don't like the feeling of what your skin looks like but um, that's life and so so in that way buildings do reflect who we are and, and they are a, a prosthesis in that sense and they are a reflection of, of human beings because they actually house humans so the thing that's interesting in all of this is I just wondering where this is all going to lead to and what it's going to mean is are, are we going to one day stop building super tall buildings because it's really a hassle are we going to be living more like the european big cities where we say you know eight to ten stories is good enough we don't we don't have to go 30 and 40 what's the point well it's you know it's a great question and you know my contention is is that, that if we were uh, given what we, ha- you know, are learning about the embodied carbon problem, if we were a rational society, we would have a moratorium on buildings right now until we figured out how to deal with the problem. But that's, you know, that's not how this how this stuff works, right? Uh, no. There's a whole lot of other drivers in play. It's like if you look at the buildings that that are, you know, that that we've been constructing like mad in New York City, it's not. You know, we talk a lot about performance, you know, here in the U.S. Uh, but you know what's driving those buildings is aesthetics. It's not. It's not performance. Yeah, they need to look at. And I think you know on that note too. The I think the design to the or the, the challenge to the design community is making prefab buildings look like normal buildings and I you know or site built buildings. I think because that that's one of the drawbacks. If you look at some of the earlier prefab and modular work, they're very simple, right and and that, you know, to, to Vincent's point earlier on, you make decisions as designers, okay, I can do prefab everything up to the cladding attachment, and then I'll do the cladding on site, or I'll do, you know, 20% of the cladding on site, so I hide my joints. And that's, you know, those are the design decisions that we're talking about in early state SD right now, is like, all right, how, what do I want this building to look like? What kind of cladding am I using? And how can I hide it or, or express it, right? You can you can go either way with uh, with joints, so... Yeah, and I don't think a lot of attention is still being paid to how buildings age. Like, I know it sounds crazy because, you know, like who wants to become a a geriatric specialist as a building scientist, although there is a future in it uh, if you live long enough. But the thing is, like, you got to think, okay, um, why did the old buildings age so gracefully? Well, you know, the type of materials they picked and, and the type of patina, that, that, that developed on the masonry surfaces and the fact that they had all of these uh, embellishments on them and the water drained off, it gave them com- character. They had eyebrows and mustaches and all that kind of stuff that really gave them a, so they sort of, you know, and then you look at some of the minimalist stuff that we've tried to pull off and I've gone to some projects five years after, they look like nothing that was published online after they took after they took the photograph they've got water staining they've got rust that's dripped onto things and they, they somehow they, they didn't realize that the core 10 uh, was going to was going to you know leach stuff all out all over the place that at the sidewalk level you think somebody has had painted it with rust paint or something i mean it's just unbelievable so so th- this this is another aspect of it that i think you have to think about as well at the schematic design stage when you're doing the concept you got to say what am I doing here? Do I want a building that's going to age gracefully? And like, like you know, t- to me, 
one of my big heroes, and and probably because I was always madly in love with her. But I always used to think, I don't know of anybody that aged as well as Sophia Loren. Like she just was amazing, you know. And some people, holy shit, five years after the uh, the Academy Awards, they they're, they're ready for the old age home. So I don't know what the heck it is, you know. Yeah, I mean, even further even further upstream than SDs though, and I'm gonna get. I don't know who's listening to this thing, and if I'm going to get <laughs> shot, but is 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 ownership structure right? And and oh, yeah. I think there's a huge that that's a, a plays a huge hand and it has a massive influence over how durable the building is. Is you know if if we're if we're building a piece of infrastructure that Ellis Don has a you know we're going to own it for thirty years, then we we obviously like the equation is operational and capital cost. Like we do that math right, but if if the owner is, is going to flip it or if it's switching to a, a different form of ownership immediately after construction, well, that balance is a lot different, right? Yeah, so. yeah. it's amazing how many of these, you know, big resource-intensive building projects go up without even a, de- a definition of the design service life of the building. Well, well, that's yeah. good. Yeah, that, that's good on the horizon that. of the investment. So who, who really cares, right? That's the problem. Right. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that's really been positive is just last year in 2019, we finally got through the uh, S478 standard for durability in buildings. It used to be a guideline, but it's going to be referenced in the 2020 National Building Code. And that means that the provinces will pick it up. If, if you read that standard, you have to, you have to, as part of your construction documentation, you have to declare your service life you have it has to be made explicit you have to have maintenance schedules for all of the critical control layers and and functions you, you that like like when we had architects that i was on that committee we had architects in that committee that said you have just made our lives extremely complicated but it's the right thing to do because nobody talks about this stuff right it'd be like getting a car and you'd say and how often do i change the oil and somebody goes ah don't worry about it <laughs> what do you mean? Don't worry about it. I yeah, want to know. It's, like, a, it's a great standard. It's a great standard, and we will definitely have a link to that in the in the show notes because I think it's really important. But this whole issue that you're talking about, Ted, you know, like it, like it's re- it's really uh, factors of obsolescence, right? And we've yeah. done a whole lot of studies on consumer products about the phenomenon of obsolescence, but very little in buildings, you know, and it's, it's not just degradation uh, that compromise service life in buildings, right? I mean, it's social change, right? It's, you know, a technological change, right? You can have technological obsolescence in a, oh. in a building, uh, you know, aesthetics, so and, just the aesthetics what, alone. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens is, you know, uh, what happens is we, we don't, Build the, design the buildings with enough adaptability to these forces of obsolescence, right? We don't anticipate them. I mean, it's difficult. It's challenging, right? Especially yeah. when you're looking at accelerated social change and climate change and all this kind of all these kind of uncertainties that are coming at us now. It's really uh, well, it's a challenge. In the, in the facade side too, what what we're seeing is a challenge. So there's a lot more cladding options. You know, and claddings are we talk a lot about claddings. Because they're the aesthetic, you know, view of the building, and and there's a whole bunch of new products that make a lot of claims, and some are definitely better than others. But you know, we we've definitely evolved from you know the days of of brick, concrete, stucco, and you know, and metal panels, right? So I mean, 
there's all sorts of panelized systems that have varying degrees of performance. And one of the things that, you know, if you're, you're providing these facade systems, you know, you're taking ownership for that cladding to look good for, you know, what you're, you're selling it for, right? It's like you, you, you own that system. And so what we're, we're starting to do now is we're, we're looking at long-term, you know, accelerated weathering tests to try to get some of these answers. I mean, we get new materials all the time, wood in particular, wood sidings, and we, we throw them up in, in weathering racks. And it's amazing, you know, like you say, the renders, how fast some materials change, you know, patina, color, you know, even shape, you know, uh, you know, wood in particular, you know, some products just aren't meant to be sidings. And so, um, you know, there's that real risk side too. And back to like, sort of, you know, if we tie this back to prefabrication is, you know, to differentiate a prefabricated system to the consumer, they don't care about the guts, right? As long as, you know, it's meeting code and, and performance is not going to fall off the building, but it's going to be that aesthetic, right? And I think you're going to start seeing differentiation in aesthetics by, you know, companies partnering with different cladding suppliers or coming up with their own claddings. And that is going to help, I think, maybe create some awareness around this too, because it's now, hey, you know, I got this system, my name and reputation is standing by this just like, you know, Ford and GM and every other car company has had bad years of paint, you know, cladding companies or, or facade panel companies hopefully won't have bad years of, of paint on their, on their cladding systems. Well, here's the other part I just wanted to kick in is that we're starting to see now in North America that, you know, particularly amongst the, the large pension funds that they're starting to invest in real estate it's 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 it's, it's they're, they're they're not investing in oil uh, anymore or they don't want to invest in oil because people are that, that are from the pension funds are saying we don't want you, we want ethical investments let's invest in buildings and so now i think we're just reaching the stage where people are going to start very carefully assessing i i happen to pick up a uh, a comprehensive uh, building uh, condition assessment uh, that was put together for standard and poor um, and it's, it's an amazing document. It's about as thick as a telephone book. It's pretty amazing. But now when they pass that through that entire set of procedures, you sort of get to know everything about the building. And they are starting to add things to it like, uh, you know, uh, it, it's carbon, uh, uh, you know, contributions and all these kind of things. And they're starting to look at the at the whole risk, and, and the facade carries a large part of its life cycle risk in terms of whether it will devalue or not devalue as an asset, because this is what they're investing in. So I think once this comes into play, what before was never ever thought of, I think is going to start to really impact issues of durability and how long does it look good, and also like how maintenance intensive is it, because there are systems out there that can be cleaned and look really good all the time. But I've been told that the cleaning is very expensive to do, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking like some of the aluminum, uh, like Alumacore, just to use an example, wonderful looking product, I think. Uh, But in grimy cities, and there may be cities where the air quality doesn't do this, but in grimy cities, like they basically say you should be washing it same way you wash a car. Well, you know, a building is a big surface. It costs a lot of money to do a proper washing job to make it look like the way it's supposed to look when when it was put together uh whatever 10 or 15 years ago or whatever that magic number happens to be so i i think i think the pressure points are coming about i think the tip we're reaching the tipping points and i'm just really glad that we've had the opportunity to have this podcast because 
I think we've touched on all the big issues that people should be aware of and sort of the pitfalls of where they might not want to go. And, and hopefully, um, you know, in the next five to 10 years, we're going to get this figured out enough that it becomes more or less a cakewalk for everyone to end up getting a really good uh, prefabricated panelized uh, wall system put on a cladding or, or, or enclosure system and, and, and that it has a reliable level of performance, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing how much there is to talk about. Uh, I sort of, I agree, Ted, but I also sort of feel like we just managed to scratch the surface, but it was, uh, it was a pretty good scratch. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, guys. So any parting comments uh, to sort of put a wrap to this conversation? Vince? I guess I'll take the contractor's approach since that's the world we I, I come from. I, I'm, I'm optimistic about the the opportunities that exist in the supply market, and I think that what we'll hopefully see is is I hopefully see prefab systems that that have like that 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 have standardized guts that can that are well suited for highly automated plants. And we'll have sort of customizable aesthetics that might use a little more labor, but will allow for, you know, long lasting, pleasant facades that suit the market. So I, I really hope that, you know, suppliers emerge with these type of, you know, guts plus aesthetics and a kit of parts that can, can serve all sorts of buildings. Yeah, Instead I, of reinventing the wheel every time, I guess. Yeah. Big opportunities. Big opportunities. Graham? Yeah. I think for designers, you know, you think think early on whether prefabrication is even right. I mean, that's, you know, there are lots of benefits, but, you know, stick-built conventional construction is still going to be, you know, the vast majority long into the future and probably beyond my my career here and your guys' as well. You know, it you know what what's the driver? I mean, you've got drivers for prefab, whether it be, you know, the energy code pushing you to a, you know, performance level that's hard to achieve cost-effectively with uh, – Site built, you know, you got local labor problem, you got height and access, um, you know, mass timber, as, as Ted mentioned, is really a catalyst that uh, is pushing people towards it just for the speed and, and closing in these buildings in for moisture. So, you know, think early and hard about whether you need to. And if you do want to go the prefabricated route, because you can see the benefits, uh, you know, try to find those partners that are going to help you and the other you know, people that are already in the market. Um, if not, start your own company. You know, <laughs> this is, you know, the reality is there aren't enough companies doing this right now. And the ones that are, uh, I think they're not being fully utilized uh, doing these large scale facade systems. So this market's going to grow and it's going to grow because of these, these drivers. And, uh, you know, just, you know, don't do prefab for the sake of prefab. Do it for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree completely. Good point, Grant. Ted, you want to put the final wrap on this? Well, uh, after listening to what everybody said, if I was a if I was a person that was going to go down the prefab route for my building enclosure, I guess one of the things that I would have to start out with is something that was pointed out very well by Graham is that you know uh, the low, medium, and high levels of risk associated with prefabricated uh, panelized enclosure systems uh, correspond to the low, medium, and high height of the building so so a lower risk for low rise medium risk for mid rise and and very much higher risk for high rise so that's first thing to do up front um it seems from the contracting side of view uh point of view vincent has said you know what 
you make sure you have the right procurement model because you're going to need design assist and a whole bunch of things working together. And you're not going to get that out of a stipulated lump sum type of contract. So that really then becomes really important. And then once you come up with an idea, if, if you're smart, you probably will do a mock-up if it's incorporating innovations that you haven't tried before. And you might also want to couple that to a good quality assurance and commissioning uh, uh, program. And, and, and if you can do all of that, you'll probably end up with something that works pretty well. So it, it seems that um, while we don't have absolutely perfect solutions, we can, I think, go forward in a safer, more reliable manner and manage our risks. Um, hopefully one day it'll, it'll get to the point where uh, there'll be very little risk at all just because we'll get re- very good at doing this. So, so like everything else, practice makes perfect and we're uh, uh, early days here, uh, but the future looks bright. So that's the way I would close it off. That's great. Great summary, Ted. So look, guys, uh, this was uh, you know great program, great show, great conversation. I think we may want to revisit this down the road a little bit. So look, you know, uh, I really appreciate the time you guys took to do this. Uh, I hope it was uh, you know a, a worthwhile experience for you guys. Um, you've got a, a taste of what we're up to um, at the at the Facade Tectonics Institute, and I hope we managed to capture some of your interest as well as, uh, you know, our audience for these things. Uh, And, you know, we can, uh, you know, we're trying to make some change. We can use all the help we can get. 